Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you don't have a Bible and need to use one, there should be a black hardbound Bible somewhere nearby, and 1 Corinthians 9 is on page 956 of that Bible. Uh, this week, we come back to our series through 1 Corinthians, this letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at chapter 8, where the Corinthians asked a question about eating food sacrificed to idols. And uh, Paul gave them no yes-no answer on that. He simply used that question to talk about a bigger issue, which is the issue of Christian freedom. How is it that we ought to use that freedom? And essentially, he says that he's told us that our freedoms should never become stumbling blocks for others. That wouldn't just be sin against them, that would be sin against Christ. And as we come to chapter 9, we're not actually moving on to a new subject. We're continuing it, and Paul uses his own life as an example of what it means to set aside freedoms, to set aside rights for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. So let's read uh, the whole of the chapter, and then we'll pray and begin. <clears throat> Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. For it, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share in this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground of bo for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. 
Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make use, full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to your word, we recognize that it is your word. And we pray that you would speak through your word to us, by your spirit, through your servant. That what we know not, you will teach us. That what we have not, you will give us. And that what we are not, you will make us for Jesus' sake. Amen. As a race, human beings love self. From the Garden of Eden to the south side of Indianapolis. In every home and in every neighborhood, behind every cash register and in every corner office, across all economic classes and political parties and ethnicities and educational levels and languages spoken, we are hooked on self. We are self-serving. It's interesting, in the last couple of decades, there's been a shift in the way we prioritize the self. We were once a people simply of relativism, where truth was determined by self, by the individual. Right and wrong was determined by the individual, and and the line was, well, my truth is my truth, and your truth is your truth. I live my way, you live your way. But what has actually changed in more recent years is that which was relative has now become absolute. It has now almost become militarized. So that I live my way, and you must see my way of living my way as right. 
You must not only recognize it and respect it, you must accept it. You must celebrate my sense of self or else. Or else you'll lose your influence in society. Or else you'll lose your job. Or else you'll lose me as a friend. Or else, in the most extreme cases, you may lose your life. Self-serving and self-focus are everywhere. It's a cancer that has infected all of society. But friends, before we go to nodding so hard that our neck gets a cramp, let's realize this. It ain't just out there. It's in here. You see, Christians can turn even good things from God into self-serving opportunities. We turn a worship service like this into an opportunity to serve me. What did I think of the service? Did I like the selection of songs? Do I give the service two thumbs up? Because that actually determines something. We take the blessing of being part of a church family... And we turn it into an opportunity to serve self, to believe that this group of people exists to love and to serve me. We can even take service opportunities, serving others into serving self. Isn't that interesting? Maybe you've done something for someone you... Help them do one thing or another. You did some service or you taught some class. You discipled some person and you thought, or you took some meal and you thought, well, now, now where was my thank you? Why? I didn't, nobody said anything about what I did. In some places, they try to put the names in the bulletin of everybody who does everything. And if your name gets left out, whoo, Monday morning in the pastor's office can be quite a tornado. But we can do this with anything, can't we? We can take anything that's good and turn it into a self-serving opportunity. And what Paul's telling the Corinthians is, don't take your Christian freedom and turn it into a way to serve self. Over in Galatians 5, he says, you were, you have been given freedom, but don't turn freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but in love serve one another. That's essentially what Paul has been saying and here in chapter 9, he wants to teach us. He teaches us to be prepared to sacrifice Christian freedom for the sake of gospel ministry. Be prepared to sacrifice Christian freedom for the sake of gospel ministry. And Paul's life is an example of that. His example drives the chapter, and his example drives the point home. Now, how does it do that? Well, first, it begins with Paul defending his rights. Paul defends his rights. Now, we all may want to give our own definition of rights. I mean, we talk about rights all the time in 21st century America. The, the, the word right that you heard all through there is actually the word for power or authority. The idea is to be able to ex exercise personal freedom, personal authority, without being hindered by others. And what is it that Paul is defending? What is it that he says he has the freedom to do? What is this right? 
Well, the right is to earn a living by preaching the gospel. And he bases this argument on three things. His office, common sense, and God's command. So first, his office in verses 1 and 2. Am I not free? Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul is an apostle. If you're not familiar with that word, it means one who is sent generally, but very specifically, it was a unique office in the early decades of the church. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was these men who were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ, commissioned by the resurrected Christ, in order to be the foundation of the church, to preach the gospel and start churches and these kinds of things. And Paul is one of these men. Now, some may question it because he wasn't one of the original 12 or for other reasons, but the Corinthians should never question it. They owe their church life to Paul. They wouldn't even be there if it weren't for him. They are the seal, he says, the proof of his apostleship. And he says as an apostle, he has the right to some kind of support, just like the other apostles get. Look at verses 4 to 6. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? The brothers of the Lord being those children born after uh, uh, Jesus had been born. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Now, those aren't genuine questions. He's not actually asking, do I have the right to eat? He's saying, I do. Paul has a right to earn a living from gospel ministry because of his office, because he's an apostle, but also because of common sense. Look at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its own fruit, of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? I mean, the soldier is an employee, essentially. The planter of the vineyard is likely the owner. And shepherds who would tend the flock were very often slaves. But it doesn't matter which role you have or what position you have or what title you have. If you work, you have a right to some kind of benefit. Now, I say that, and that is not controversial at all, right? I don't say that and you think, wow, I've never thought about that before. I mean, I've been going to this job for decades, and I've never expected them to pay me anything. No. You do work. You, get, you expect some type of benefit. The amount and the type of benef benefit depends on the amount and type of work, but the expectation is reasonable. And Paul's work is preaching the gospel, teaching and encouraging the church, giving counsel and accountability, strengthening them. And it's reasonable, just based on common sense, to expect support for all of the time and energy and effort that he puts into these things. But he also... Better, better, better than the argument from his office, better than the argument from common sense, though, is the argument from God's command. Look at verses 8 to 10. 
Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Now, this command to not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain is found in Deuteronomy 25. And basically what God is saying there is that even an ox deserves some kind of compensation for its work. Don't put a muzzle on it. Let it eat. And that principle goes for ministers of the gospel. Look at verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded, commanded, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. In other words, Ron can eat the sweet corn in August. Right? Can I get an amen, Ron? All right. He can eat that. Those who worked in the temple, the priests, and those who served at the altar, their compensation came. They didn't raise food for themselves. Their food came from the service in the temple. They benefited from the work. And Paul is saying, ministers of the gospel should do the same. But it's a different kind of return. It's not same for same. It's spiritual work for material support. Now, some churches, quite honestly, are unable to do this on a full-time capacity. But others seem to be simply unwilling. I remember Alistair Begg telling the story of uh, his doing a seminar, I think at a Moody conference, called uh, Dealing with the Ministerial Blues. And in the question and answer time, a man stands up to ask about his pastor's wife. She always seems so gloomy, so depressed. She's really not very fun to be around, and we're not really sure what we should do about it. Something that's never actually said around here, if you know Susan. If you don't, I'm just telling you. But Alistair looked at this man and said, so the man asked what they should do, and, and, and Alistair said, you should increase your pastor's salary by $5,000 a year. Now, he just said that tongue-in-cheek. But as he came to talk with the man after the service, as it turned out, the church had been quite stingy in their support of the pastor, and that had taken a toll on his wife. And sadly, some churches seem to want to starve their pastors, asking them to live on breadcrumbs. And Paul's saying, it's wrong. It's wrong. Now, I feel great freedom in saying these things because I can't say it about you. You look at me, you know I'm not living on breadcrumbs. <laughs> I'm living on yeasted donuts. 
But over the last almost 14 years, I have been consistently humbled at the generosity of this congregation toward me and toward my family. This is a testimony, a testimony for generally an honoring view of the pastor of office. Office of pastor, sorry. It is a testimony just of the wisdom that those who deal in these things have with regard to salaries and benefits. And do you know what else it's a testimony of? Your obedience to God's command that those who preach the gospel should make their living by the gospel. I think, actually, if we were to have the Apostle Paul examine things, I think he would commend you as well in these. Paul defends these rights, but the real kicker is he doesn't want any of it. He defends his rights, but secondly, he denies his rights. Listen to verse 15. I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. In other words, he's not saying all of this because secretly he wants them to start giving him money. But the question is, if he is so staunch in defending these rights, why would he deny them? And there are actually a few reasons in the text why he denies his rights. First, he denies his rights to avoid obstacles. Look at the second half of verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Now, what obstacle is he talking about? Well, he doesn't explicitly say. But in the city of Corinth, one of the ways that things get done is through these patron and client relationships. A patron was essentially a rich man who provided money and protection and care for another who would become his client, almost like a personal assistant, personal cheerleader even. If that guy, if the patron ran for office, the client was obligated to vote for him. If the patron needed some PR work in town, the client took care of it. He helped him in private life. He helped him in public life. The client lives to promote and please the patron. But in gospel ministry, friends, that simply won't do. Now, there may be people in Corinth who think it'd be quite nice if we had an apostle in our pocket. And there are people in political life today on both sides of the aisle who think it's quite nice to have a pastor in their pocket. But that is a corrupting relationship. It is an obstacle to faithful gospel ministry because if my livelihood as a pastor depends in part on the politician I'm supposed to stand with, how do I criticize the man? How do I correct him? And there is no politician in any office that doesn't need to be corrected. No politician in any office that makes the right call every time. And to have a pastor in the pocket as if God is obviously on my side, well, that's a corruption of both gospel ministry and the integrity of the pastor. 
But he wants to avoid that kind of obstacle. He also wants to stay focused. The second half of verse 15, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. Now, quite frankly, when you read that, you could read it four or five times and still be thinking, what exactly is Paul saying here? Well, I'm not going to parse every word, but let me give you a sense of what he's saying. He's saying the ministry isn't for him. It's not for him. He didn't volunteer for this gig. He was drafted. It's not like he thought, what's the most noble thing I can do with my life? I think I'll go into pastoral ministry. Aren't I a hero? No, 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 no. <laughs> the risen Jesus says to Ananias before he goes and prays for Paul, I'm actually going to show him how much he must suffer for me. Now, what would you think if that was in a job interview? We're going to hire you, but let me tell you how bad it's going to be. You'll probably get beaten. There's definitely shipwreck in your future. And this position comes with lifelong hatred from many. Do you want the job? This is not what God says to Paul. He says, you're mine, and you will do what I have called you to do. And in a very real sense, there ought to be that kind of sense from anyone who is in pastoral ministry. Whether they are in the regular pay of the congregation or not. If anyone would be a pastor, would be an elder, would be an overseer, if any man would do that, he desires a noble thing. But it's not because he is so noble. It is out of a sense of God has laid it on me. Woe to me if I don't. That is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying about preaching the gospel, basically what Martin Luther said about twisting the gospel. Here I stand. I can do no other I can't do anything else. This is it. Paul's not interested in material reward of any kind. I mean, if he was a volunteer, sure. But all he wants is to be focused on being a faithful steward of the gospel. What then is my reward, he says in verse 18? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Preaching the gospel is its own reward. So Paul denies his rights. Avoid obstacles. Stay focused. And he really wants to increase fruitfulness. Now this, this is where we get to the part of chapter 9 you've probably read many times. Verse 19. Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. 
To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. In order to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So when Paul is with Jews, he is glad to accommodate his interactions with them to their observances. When he is with those under the law, meaning Gentiles who are seeking to live under the Jewish law, he, uh, things like the Sabbath and, and probably because of their background, they won't eat meat sacrificed to idols and uh, they observe different festivals. Okay, I'll do that. Let's talk about the gospel. When he's with those outside the law, he becomes like them. Not because he sets aside the moral law of God. He's under the law of Christ. Love God, love others. And the law of Christ which sacrifices self in order to save. And so where he wouldn't eat the meat with one, he'll do it with them. Sure, you think this is, you think whatever. You want to eat the meat? We'll eat the meat. You want to avoid the Sabbath? We'll avoid the Sabbath. Sure, I'll help you plow the field on that day. And while we do it, let's talk about the gospel. And then with the weak, with those down and out, with the ones forgotten by society, the ones actually, if you go back to chapter 1, who are filling the pews in Corinth. I'll become weak. I don't need to be anybody in this society. Let me just sit down with you in the gutter of life. But when I do, let's talk about the gospel. It's quite something, isn't it? Paul's goal, no matter who he's with, is to win them. He will bend wherever he can bend. Paul will not sin. He will not violate his conscience. He will not disobey the moral law or the law of Christ. He simply won't do it, but he will do a whole bunch of other stuff. He will celebrate the Sabbath. He will not celebrate the Sabbath. He will eat the meat. He will not eat the meat. He will accommodate anything, whatever it takes, to win them. Faithful, fruitful ministry is more important to Paul than his freedom. That's what he's saying. And because his livelihood doesn't depend on the church... He can do that freely. He doesn't care what they think about him being with those people. They don't pay his bills. They don't put food on his table. And friends, I'll tell you, even if they did, his attitude would be the same. But he's making it clear. I don't need any of that. What I need is to do the job that God has given me without obstacles, and to stay focused so that I can increase fruitfulness. And this idea of accommodating is a great example for us. Sadly, it is also a place where we can fail in a couple of ways. The first way we can fail is by limiting those whom we will and won't be around. 
outside the law. I'm not going to hang out with anybody outside the law. He's a liberal. She's living with her boyfriend. They fly that particular flag outside their house or put that particular sign in their yard. I cannot stand being around those people. It just makes me so angry. But you see, it's a failure because in limiting who we will and will not be around, we don't simply fail to follow Paul's example. We fail to follow Jesus' example. The one who was not only a friend of sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, but, have a, but he had a whale of a reputation for it, didn't he? That's one way we can fail. The second way we can fail is not by limiting those that we will be around, but limiting what we will do once we're around them. You see, simply being a friend of sinners, a friend of tax collectors, a friend of prostitutes is not gospel ministry, not in and of itself. Jesus must come with us. He must come into the room with us. And at some point, he must come into the conversation with us. After all, what good is it to be a friend of sinners if you're unwilling to introduce them to the friend of sinners? Right? And I wonder as you hear those two errors, which one you're more likely to make. Which is more important to you? Faithful, fruitful ministry? Or your comfort, your freedoms, your rights, your sense of righteousness in being separate? Who is it that you wouldn't spend time with who's at work? Just roll through, just roll through it in your mind. Who is it you're like, I don't think I'm ever going to have coffee with them. Who is it that you currently have a friendship? Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker, And you've been around them for years. You haven't hid from them at all. But it's as if you're hiding Jesus from them. I'm not telling you to take out your evangelistic machine gun and go in blazing. But what I am saying is what is the most important thing about that person? If we never talk about what is most important, what is eternal, are we really friends? Am I really being the kind of friend that I ought to be? Paul defends his rights, but he denies his rights for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of winning them. But that's not all he wants to win. Lastly, Paul, wants, Paul is determined to get something better, something better than financial support from churches. 
Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul doesn't want perishable things. He doesn't want silver or gold. He doesn't want a perishable wreath. He wants something more. He does want something. His sacrifice isn't for nothing. According to those verses, he wants to run the race. He wants to make it to the end. He wants to cross the finish line, and he wants to win. He doesn't want to fall short. He doesn't want to be disqualified. Now, be very careful and listen carefully. He's not talking about being disqualified from preaching the gospel. He's saying he doesn't want to be disqualified from the gospel itself. That's how seriously he takes it. And then the hand shoots up in the back. Now, wait a second. We're Baptists. Just a second. Hold on. Um, Is he saying that you can lose your salvation? The short answer is no. However, think. Paul is not trying to teach a doctrine of security here. He's not trying to explain that to us. He's also not saying that living for Jesus somehow earns something for us. And yet at the exact same time, it is a real warning. Paul does not wink at us once he writes it. He does not put an asterisk and then down at the bottom of the page write, it's not what you think it is. He doesn't write just kidding on the back of the page. It is a real warning. But don't let that throw you because what is the point of every warning you've ever received in your life? To keep you safe. To keep you from danger. That's why parents warn their children. That's why those yellow signs are on the side of the road. That's why there are warning labels on medicines to keep us from danger, to keep us safe. And what Paul is saying is the most dangerous thing that the Christian can do is quit. That's the most dangerous thing you can do if you profess to be a Christian. Give up. Take your foot off the gas. Throw it in cruise control. Find a recliner and retire from the Christian life. But the safest thing to do is to keep striving, to keep serving. Now, the way in which we serve may change over time, doesn't it? Maybe because of physical limitations or due to a decline in health, due to a decline in mental capacity, diminishing energy. One may be confined to a room or a house or a bed, but that does not cease our living for the Lord Jesus and seeking to be useful wherever it is that we are. And that, but that kind of striving, that kind of serving all the way to the end takes sacrifice. 
like these Olympic athletes that we see their stories about all that they gave up, about the 5 a.m. pool time, about giving up favorite foods and favorite people and favorite vacations and all of that. Why? To win. To stand on the winner's platform. And Paul says if they will do that for something that's nothing, how much more must I do it? for someone who's everything. That's his something better. And he tells the Corinthians to join with him. He says in verse 24, So run that you may obtain it. Friends, here's one of my concerns about the future of the church. I am no prophet, and I am not a prognosticator, but I have a concern which is this, that in order to serve the Lord in any capacity, it takes sacrifice. Some of you young men should be asking the Lord about pursuing pastoral ministry in some way. And that will take sacrifice, whether it is something you do unpaid by a church whether it is in full-time vocational Christian ministry. Some of you who are not young men need to consider whether you, whether God would have you serve in pastoral ministry. That will take sacrifice. Some of you need to consider whether you need to live in this place and keep doing what you're doing for the rest of your life. Some of you need to consider whether God might call you to another place another country in order to serve him. You know what that'll take? Sacrifice. Some of you just need to consider whether you'll just stop coming and sitting in that pew every week. You'll actually start discipling someone. You'll start serving someone else. You'll take up a role in something where we have roles available. You'll, you'll begin to do more. You'll begin to build a relationship with that coworker that you've turned your nose up at. Do you know what that'll take? Sacrifice. It'll take an understanding that what has been given by God to us is not for us. It is for the sake of others. My concern isn't that it will take sacrifice. My concern is that we live in an age where convenience is king, where we love our leisure time. We love our recreation time. We love our personal time. We love indulgence. Those loves will lead to sacrificing sacrifice. Now, I warn myself as much as I warn you, friends, Because after almost 14 years, I will tell you, as I talk to other pastors, I have got a dream place that I am serving. But let me just tell us all, beware of the dream. Beware of the ruts. Beware of the ease. Beware of the status quo. Beware of sacrificing sacrifice on the altar of self. 
That's what Paul's telling them. Your freedom is not about you. Instead, sacrifice for something better. Run for Christ. Please Christ. Gain Christ. Not because you can earn something from Him. We can't earn anything, no matter how much we sacrifice. But sacrifice because Jesus is worth it. He is worth it because He didn't consider His rights worth anything. He didn't consider His equality with God as anything He ought to hang on to or fight for or grasp. He emptied Himself and came for us. And nothing would hinder Jesus from running the race. Nothing would make Him quit. And yet it was a race that ran Him through hatred. It was a race that ran Him through opposition. It was a race that wasn't rewarded by human beings except with the execution of a cross. A sacrifice like no other. You see, to humanity, Jesus became like humanity in order that he might win humanity. He took on flesh and bore our sin and endured our punishment and sacrificed his rights to save us. And that Savior is worth it. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, C.T. Studd said, then there is no sacrifice too great that I can make for him. He is better than any rights that you will defend. He is better than anything you might sacrifice. He is better than any reward or recognition that people give. Jesus is better. Jesus is the reason that we should be prepared to sacrifice our Christian freedom for the sake of gospel ministry. And so our prayer today, in light of that, is take my life. Take it. And let it be consecrated to you, to your work to your purposes. That's our prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we adore you. We love you. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We see in that sacrifice not only an example to follow, but we see one whose very sacrifice empowers and strengthens us to sacrifice. Lord, we pray that you will make us like Jesus in this. Help us to evaluate our lives, to decide where it is, to see where it is that we must change. Show us, Lord, are there people we simply won't be around because of who they are? Are we friends with many, but not introducing Jesus to any? God, thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. Help us to be those who may be able to defend our rights, but will gladly deny our rights for something better for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.